Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. This is another one of our Inside the TCPA series. I am Steve Augustino with the Communications Practice Group. I'm joined today not by Jenny Wainwright. She's on uh, maternity leave at the moment, but I'm joined by... Brad Currier, an associate in the Communications Practice Group. Hello, everyone. And the reason Brad's here with me today is that our Inside the TCPA topic is FCC enforcement on, of the TCPA. And Brad and I do a lot of discussions of enforcement. If you're a fan of this podcast series, you know that we have a, a semi-monthly um, podcast on enforcement activities generally. But we're here to talk about TCPA and TCPA enforcement. Um, and just to kind of piece this together, enforcement is one of the, ma- the three major pieces to the policy puzzle that the FCC has in front of it. It's moving forward in all three areas at this point, the first one being rulemakings aimed at clarifying the ATDS or TCPA issues. The second set of issues are um, FCC and industry-led efforts to generate technical solutions to reduce unwanted or illegal calls. And then this third piece of it is for those calls which are, in fact, illegal, what is the FCC doing about it to go and punish those entities that are engaging in those practices? That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I will note before we dive into all of this stuff that um, this is the fourth of our issues on inside the TCPA. I encourage you to go back and look at those earlier ones as well, where we talk about the ATDS definition. We talk about consumer consent. We talk about call blocking efforts. Um, I believe that the FCC is getting ready to move forward on all of those fronts in the next few months. So reading those podcasts and listening to those podcasts will be a good uh, background for you to get you moving forward. But we're here now to start talking about enforcement of the TCPA. And I'll set the stage a little bit, and then, Brad, you can bring us up to date on some of the things that have been happening here. Um, So as we've discussed in some of our other podcasts, the FCC has proposed or imposed over $200 million in fines now for unlawful caller ID spoofing and or TCPA violations. And we'll go through those two things and the difference between spoofing and TCPA in more detail here. Um, That's been a number of of things that garnered a lot of headlines, $120 million fine against Adrian Abramovich and a $2.88 million fine against the robocalling platform dialing services, um, as well as um, actions related to Philip Rossell, which is one of the people we will talk about uh, more in a little bit here. Those, just to set the stage and kind of compare a little bit, those actions have generally been targeted against individuals and small companies that originated a large number of ro- robocalls, and it generated really good 
you know, publicity for the FCC and nice headlines. Yeah, that's right, Steve. And the FCC took a hard line in these cases, uh, dismissing attempts by the targets of the investigations to pass the blame to other entities, such as the carriers that transmitted the robocalls or the businesses that ordered the robocalling campaigns to begin with. That's right. And, and part of that is they were really hard line on inability to pay. Um, that is rejecting those ideas and saying we can balance that and look at other things as well. Yeah, that's true, but it also remains unclear whether the FCC actually expects the targets to pay these large fines and whether this is really more about sending a message to deter future violators and establish precedents supporting large penalties in the future. Really, it's up to the DOJ, and we've talked about this in prior enforcement podcasts, about seeking a collection action in these cases, which is probably unlikely to occur. At least in those past ones. Maybe it'll change in the ones we're going to talk about today. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of these actions that were adopted by the FCC in September of 2018. Sure. Why don't you get us started? So the first one right off the bat is one that we've already mentioned uh, regarding best insurance contracts and its owner, Philip Russell. So this involved a forfeiture order imposing over $81 million in fines on the company and the owner for unlawful spoofing associated with insurance insurance robocalling campaign that involved about 21 million calls during a three-month period. Now, a little background here. The Truth in Caller ID Act prohibits the alteration of caller ID information with the intent to defraud, cause harm, or obtain anything of value. Now, the FCC proposed the fine last year, along with a citation for the robocalling campaign under the TCPA. The robocalls disrupted an emergency medical paging service, and they get received a report on that, the FCC. And the robocalls were also sent to wireless and wireline numbers without prior consent of the call party in violation of the TCPA. As we explained in our podcast on the proposed Russell fine, you know, a couple, you know, last year, uh, unlike the TCPA, the Truth in Caller ID Act allows the FCC to impose forfeitures against non-licensees without first issuing a citation, and that's a difference from what normally is the process under the Communications Act. And before you go into the arguments here, I think since this is a TCPA podcast, we want to want to draw those distinctions just a little bit more finely here. The TCPA deals with auto-dialing calls and sending those calls without consent. Our listeners know that. The caller ID spoofing, the Truth Truth in Caller ID Act, deals with changing and modifying the outbound number that comes through the caller ID. It's a related action, as we'll talk about here, how the FCC is really using that to further its TCPA enforcement. But let's run through what Rossell's arguments were then in, in response to that proposed fine. Sure. So Russell made a number of arguments to eliminate or reduce the penalty, all of which the FCC rejected. So Russell argued that any violations were actually subsequently cured by the ability of consumers to obtain more information about the caller if they pressed a certain number when they received the robocall. But the FCC concluded that the Truth in Caller ID Act actually doesn't allow a spoofer to subsequently cure a violation. And that's because the violation occurs once the unlawful call is transmitted. It doesn't depend on whether or not the called party actually picks up. Russell argued that you know, he never intended to wrongfully obtain anything of value, which is one of the elements they look for in a Truth in Caller ID Act violation. But the FCC found that Russell's use of unassigned numbers and numbers assigned to consumers demonstrate an intent to avoid detection by law enforcement and prevent consumers from filing accurate complaints because they wouldn't actually have the, uh, the number which the call actually was generated from. And the FCC argued that actually the avoidance of legal liability or investigation is itself a thing of value. And this actually is a, is a very important point. And we'll go into this a little bit uh, later in just a bit. But 
that conclusion that the avoidance of the liability is a thing of value is significant um, in this proceeding here. Right. So drilling down actually on the thing of value too, Russell also pointed out that he never obtained anything of value from the actual called parties. He instead received his commissions from the insurance company clients who sponsored the robocalling campaigns. But the FCC stated that the Truth in Caller ID Act was not limited to obtaining value from the called party and could encompass value obtained from any party as a result of the calls. So then Russell argued that he never intended to actually cause harm. But the FCC found that Russell's spoofed robocalling campaign harmed the consumers called, the emergency medical paging service that was uh, disturbed, the carrier's networks that had to carry the traffic, and the value of the numbers that were spoofed. The FCC further noted that spoofing does not need to be in support of criminal activity in order to cause harm, and that the Truth in Caller ID Act broadly encompasses financial, physical, and emotional harm. Now, Commissioner O'Reilly dissented on the intention to cause harm element, and this is important. He recognized that while harm resulted from the campaign, the commissioner found that Russell did not intend to cause harm to consumers. His intention was to sell insurance and make money. He actually pushed back against the FCC's finding that Russell automatically intended to cause harm just because he conducted an unlawful spoofing robocalling campaign. As he pointed out, that would mean that anytime someone engaged in an unlawful spoofing campaign, they automatically intended to cause harm. And that swallows the element that the FCC needs to prove. And, and this is something, you know, we talk about this in our enforcement podcasts, not so much in the TCPA one. But O'Reilly really is a stickler for these kinds of rules, and these are the kinds of points he is, um, you know, he thinks deeply about, and he really wants to make sure that the FCC is doing it right and uh, by the book when they're following through on enforcement. He wants them to do it right, but he also noted that the intention to cause harm element was actually an alternative basis for liability. It didn't even need to be addressed in the in the action, and that Russell still should have been fined for wrongly obtaining something of value, which he did find to be the case. Right. Okay. And now before we jump into the other things, this I, I want to point out here, and this is the, I want to have a little bit of a discussion about what this really means and means in the context of TCPA enforcement. Because the Rossell forfeiture order, to me, is a shift in the FCC's TCPA enforcement activities. Um, not only it's, it's been using spoofing as a way to speed through the enforcement of TCPA, because TCPA has the two-step process. You need a citation and then further action after that, and then you can go to NAL, and, you know, and that's been cumbersome for the commission. So they've been skipping that and using spoofing as their their major enforcement activity here. But what's different here is on that point, this intention to cause harm that O'Reilly was talking about, because the enforcement activity is not now limited to those sales activities that themselves are deceptive or fraudulent or scams in some way. That was the true, you know, characteristic of the earlier ones, where what was being sold was a scam, or at least was alleged to be a scam. Yeah, that's right, Steve. There's no argument here or, or allegations that Russell was selling somehow insurance contract that didn't exist, or was engaging in some sort of insurance fraud. And, you know, it, that that wasn't the issue. It wasn't what he said. It was how he said it through the use of the spoof robocalling campaign. Right. Well, even more so, it's it's really that. He engaged in a TCPA violation, at least allegedly, auto-dialing consumers without consent. That's sort of the underlying piece of that. But this is an enforcement on spoofing. So what they did is they said, well, he covered up his TCPA violation by spoofing the telephone numbers with unassigned numbers or other numbers. So you couldn't detect that he was violating the TCPA. And it's really kind of that 
Now, spoofing has become sort of the cover-up, right, and the corollary for the TCPA violation. And so these people are being fined now based upon the cover-up, not the underlying violation itself. Yep, that's right. And so just drilling down a couple more of these elements here, Russell also argued that he shouldn't be held personally liable for the fine. But the FC concluded that Russell disregarded corporate formalities, commingled personal and corporate funds, and essentially made all of the decisions related to the spoof robocalling campaign at issue. And we've been seeing a lot more of this personal liability issue creeping up in FCC enforcement actions. Yeah, it's definitely we're, – we're seeing a lot of it. It's an, a fact-specific endeavor. I don't think the FCC is following the sort of the strict requirements of, under state law for piercing the corporate veil. Um, they – believe that they have, I think, broader authority to do so. I think that's still questionable. It hasn't been determined whether that approach is really permissible here. But we're seeing this both outside of TCPA context and now here in the TCPA context as a way of getting at those so-called bad actors. Yeah, it's definitely a trend to watch closely. So Russell also requested a reduction based on inability to pay, and we teed this up a little bit at the beginning of our conversation. Um, but the FCC denied the request, noting that inability to pay is just one of the factors it's cons it considers uh, when it's determining the proper forfeiture. And it found that this factor was outweighed by the egregiousness, the intentional nature, the repeated nature of the violations that they put forth here, as well as the significant harm and economic gain resulting from the violations. Now, interestingly, the FCC stated that Russell's tax returns were not by themselves dispositive on his inability to pay claim, suggesting that the FCC may demand further accounting information, financial information from targets before reducing a penalty. Yeah, which if it's true and that is what they do, that would be a pretty significant change in the enforcement approach and enforcement policy. They've long relied on the tax returns to show what the revenues are and what your ability to pay is. And so if you look beyond that, that can make it even tougher to demonstrate an inability to pay here. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that sort of approach here. But the broader point is the one I think is worth discussing here, which is that what we're hearing clearly, I think, from the FCC is that they don't really care that much about inability to pay. They see that as being outweighed by these other factors, the egregiousness of the activity, the uh, harm that's caused by the activity. So... In a way, right, they're really choosing a big number over something that they can collect. And which, again, and we mentioned this at the outset, still leaves open the question of how Russell can pay the fine or whether the FCC just wanted to send a signal to deter violators and they actually don't necessarily expect a full payment of the fine. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like it's more the latter of that, it, particularly in TCPA here. They're coming after companies that have no chance of paying these types of fines. So let's move on to the other big item we wanted to touch upon today, and that's Affordable Enterprises of Arizona. Now, here we have a notice of apparent liability. So we're talking about a proposed fine. There's a proposed fine of over $37 million for unlawful spoofing associated with a robocalling campaign, this time selling home improvement remodeling services that involved about 2 million calls during a 14-month period. Again, the FCC also issued a citation for making robocalls to residential telephone lines on the, do, on the Do Not Call Registry in violation of the TCPA. Now, the investigation here was initiated as a result of a whistleblower who indicated that the company knew that spoofed robocalling campaign was unlawful and that the called parties, or at least certain of the called parties, were on the Do Not Call Registry. 
Now, the FCC's legal analysis in this case largely mirrors the Russell forfeiture order we just discussed. In fact, the FCC used the Russell decision as precedent when calculating the proposed fine. I know we've talked about that before, which the use of sort of uh, having a, a stocking horse item go out first that sort of sets the table and then having follow-up items that rely on that before that one necessarily has reached you know, a final order status conclusion, been litigated in courts, et cetera. Right. And, and for those who are just listening to the TCPA part and haven't listened to our enforcement podcast, it's really hard to get any FCC enforcement action in front of a court. So um, it's not uncommon to see the FCC citing to itself and not citing to court decisions as to what the the uh, the TCPA or whatever the relevant law means. Right. Now, one distinction here with this uh, proposed forfeiture against affordable enterprises is that the FCC actually included a deeper dive and analysis in the intent to cause harm element, asserting that the economic intent to generate sales by itself doesn't negate the intent to cause harm to the call parties. And this likely represents a preemptive response to the Commissioner O'Reilly's argument set out in his dissent that we just discussed with Russell. Right. Well, the other major thing that we want to talk about here is that affordable use these so-called burner phones, right? So it's not um, – it's a little different from some of the other ones. Let's go through those burner phone issues. The FCC really focused on this burner phone issue as evidence that the company actively sought to avoid identification by consumers and law enforcement. Now, what happened here was they would use these phones – that would be the numbers that would be, get, be, be spoofed – and more importantly, this, this came from the whistleblower, they would retire burner phone numbers when they started showing up in online consumer complaints. And the FCC really focused on this as sort of a active measures to avoid detection, reporting, and investigation. Yeah, but it, but it, it's different. I mean, each with each enforcement action, we get incrementally so, sort of different approaches here. Here, the phones were affordable phones. So unlike in Rossell, where the allegation was that they were numbers, that were being spoofed that had no connection to the caller. Um, here, the burner phones were owned by Affordable, but the bur they were burner phones. They were sort of anonymous, and they were registered anonymously is the way the FCC described it. And so there was a connection to Affordable, but that connection was concealed by the use of those phones. Right. And I mean, the major emphasis on use of consumer numbers, often generating tens of thousands of angry return calls to people who had no connection with the company. The FCC focused on that, which again, the Russell case also involves spoofing of consumer numbers, but the issue is more pervasive here. And the burner phones that, again, as you mentioned, they're once you know, affordables, the use of the number continued after affordable no longer was the subscriber, and the number would be reassigned to an unwitting consumer. That consumer would start receiving angry ret return phone calls you know, about the robocalling campaign that they had nothing to do with. Now, the NAL suggests the notice of apparent liability that the FC is going to view any robocalling campaign that spoofs numbers of consumers as automatically causing harm to those consumers, potentially establishing liability under the Truth in Caller ID Act. Yeah, and that you know that's not surprising to me in looking at this, right? The FCC is looking for a path. These are really resource intensive to go through these types of enforcement actions, even with the way they're doing it now. And the TCPA violation has got those multiple steps with the citation, et cetera. That's not really what they. That's not really going to do anything uh, and serve the purposes they have. So here, by finding that spoofing innocent consumers' numbers is automatically causing harm, you know, I get that. It's difficult to see the justification for saying that um, 
I can knowingly use somebody else's number and that's not causing harm to that other person. Right. It's, it's basically going to be a shortcut in their analysis from this fact to this legal finding. So we just talked about some of the actions that the FCC has taken now. So now let's talk about maybe where the FCC is going. So I think it's pretty clear from what we've just discussed that the FCC doesn't show any signs of slowing down on its spoofing robocalling issues. Um, but if the FCC is going to address these TCPA interpretation questions, it will need to show vigorous efforts to target illegal activities. Plus, industry efforts like call authentication and call labeling won't be enough on their own. Effective enforcement of the TCPA violators is needed too. And that goes back to your three-legged uh, stool sort of analogy at the outset that this is just one of you know three parts they're moving forward on with robocalling right, issues. Right, right. And this is, you know, we've seen this already. It's setting up, right? In the interpretation questions, um, both parties are at, the, uh, both sides are really at the extremes there. The consumers are saying, you can't reduce or, uh, or narrow the definition of ATDS because consumers are already flooded with robocalls. If you narrow this even further, they're going to get way more robocalls, and that's going to be even worse than the situation. So whatever he does, uh, Pi does there or the commission does there, it's going to be subject to this claim that, well, now they're making it worse for consumers to get more of these unwanted calls. So. Enforcement has to be an element of that, and it's really – I think it's necessary for them to be able to say, we're taking a effective enforcement action, we're taking aggressive enforcement action, we're going after these parts. It's a, it's a counterbalance really, if you will. Sure, and there's a cost to it too because as you mentioned, these cases are very resource intensive and it remains an open question whether and to what extent the FCC is willing or able to continue to devote resources to this enforcement area when there may be other goals too that the commission wants to focus on. Right. Right. And, and that's, you know, I, I don't think either one of us believes that they expect they're going to be able to collect these types of fines. I mean, those are those are really big numbers. So it's probably not that, right? It's more, uh, you know, of whack-a-mole, just kind of constantly whoever's popping up, whoever's the one who's causing problems um, is going to be the one who gets the resources devoted to it and these types of actions coming out. Right, and that could actually force the FCC to go after other actors in the chain, you know, i.e., maybe carriers, in order to police the robocallers, similar to what we've seen in on the enforcement side in our enforcement podcasts um, regarding slamming and cramming enforcement and pirate radio, where instead of going after the actual necessarily low-lying violator, you basically set up a framework that makes it much more difficult for the actual violation to occur in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's, it's sort of by moving back a few steps, you're trying to force others in the industry to police the activity before the illegal activity happens. Now, um, this is probably a little bit premature for them to start doing that, at least not until they implement measures like the call authentication, shake and stir um, that's being discussed. So, you know, maybe this is more of like a, of a longer term thing to think about, but it, you know, History tells us in enforcement that if enforcement as against the direct violators doesn't work, the commission then starts to move towards those who are indirectly involved to try to lessen the activity itself. Right. So we're saying there may be things in the future, but right now we're seeing commissioners starting to rattle the sabers about the adoption of Shaken and Stern. Just talk about a couple of examples here. Uh, in her statement on the spoofing enforcement actions we just discussed, Commissioner Rosenworcel uh, stated that industry-led measures have not really 
done enough right now to resolve spoofing and robocalling issues and urge the FCC to adopt the shake and stir standards to provide additional resources to the FCC's robocall strike force, which still exists, and to conduct field hearings to collect public and expert input on you know, other methods, alternative ways of approaching this, what has basically been a long-term and systemic issue. Right. And this, this was a comment in September. And what's funny is we're preparing for this. We're getting ready to record this. And in the days right before this, not only does the FCC release its own podcast on robocalls, but then there are these two major activities uh, that the commission does, one related to shake and stir and one related to a, another industry effort here. And I think it's time we can we got enough time to run through these a couple of these really quickly here. Let's start with the shake and stir letters. Sure. So I'll take that one. So this is on November 5th. Uh, the chairman sends letters asking voice providers that apparently had not yet established plans to utilize shake and stir to do so. And importantly, he threatened regulatory action if the carriers do not voluntarily implement call authentication systems by next year. And we want to focus on a particular quote in the press release that sounds you know, particularly ominous, uh, likely intentionally so, to get the message across. And what the chairman's letter says that the carriers need to continue working together to make this happen. And quote, I am calling on those falling behind to catch up. If it does not appear that this system is on track to get up and running next year, then we will take action to make sure that it does, close quote. And so 11 carriers were called out by the commission with letters requesting information on their plans. A response is due later this month in November. Right. And, and you know, and that wasn't the only thing, right? Then the next day, uh, Chairman Pai sent additional letters to carriers who were not participating in the industry's traceback group. This is a group that's organized by U.S. Telecom. It's one of the trade associations for large incumbent carriers. And the goal of the traceback group is to identify quickly the true source of calls that generate complaints or are suspected to be illegal. And so the carriers get together and share information about it. And um, they can do that under the, the privacy rules. It's to protect against fraud. So that that's part is permissible here. Um, but the traceback is faster than what the FCC could do by sending individual subpoenas to each party in the chain and moving through that. So it's seen as a good thing. Um, what the Chairman Pai's letters did is he singled out eight carriers that don't currently participate in the traceback efforts. And he urged them to participate, although he doesn't have any authority to make them do so. So this is, again, just the kind of like, a, you know, I really sort of suggest that maybe this would be good for you to do something like this. Um, but in addition, the FCC asked those carriers to report to the FCC on the safeguards that it's taking to identify and to stem the flow of illegal calls. Now, that's, that's new, and that is something that could potentially lead to um, additional enforcement action or at least additional areas of inquiry. Let's say these carriers respond and their safeguards are not, you know, they don't have safeguards or they don't seem to be um, sufficient. You know, it's not clear to me that the FCC can require them to do anything in particular. There's no regulations right now that say you have to have safeguards in place. Um, but they seem to be expecting something. And so if they don't have it, does this feed then into that potential enforcement to go after those who might be allowing or aiding and embedding the uh, particular activity? Right. I mean, in one scenario, they're going to get the information that they need. They'll provide a snapshot of current industry practices. If they don't receive any information in response to it, then that may indicate that 
actual regulatory action may be needed, either to get their hands on that information or to establish the rules by which they can resolve some of these issues. All right. Right. Okay. All right. And with that, we're going we're gonna to wrap up this podcast here. That's all we have to talk about the TCPA enforcement activities. I know there's a lot, but as you can see, there's, it's a growing part of the FCC's overall uh, activities and its overall TCPA story. So um, we will talk about this some more. These pieces are tied together. I believe the FCC is getting ready to do a series of things on TCPA. And so from the policymaking to the detection uh, to the uh, unwanted call reduction efforts, all of those things are coming forward here. And it appears that we're entering that period where it's going to be a lot of activity and we're going to have a lot more on this series and um, other series as well. So thank you all very much. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.